Welcome to the Idea Land podcast, hosted by Ravi Kamati Reddy. PJ Lamberson is an associate professor in the Department of Communications at UCLA. He has a PhD in mathematics from Columbia and previously taught on the faculty at Northwestern and MIT. PJ's research involves computational social science, where he develops and uses tools to study how social connections shape human behavior. How's your esports game? Did you have to did you have to put your Minecraft on pause? For that? <laughs> you look like you're such a you look like you've, you're esportsing it up today. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> His headphones. <laughs> I'm just glad I got a chance to to catch you. Uh, I know because you're so busy and you're working on like amazing things. You're like the one from high school that went everyone thought was going to go do amazingly smart things, and then you went and did amazingly smart things, and that's what you're up to. Just to catch people up, can you just give a short summary of what you're working on in your background, a little bit of how you got there, and we'll all poke and prod. Yeah. Uh, so I got my PhD in math. I was studying um, pure math. And by the time I kind of like got was getting to the end of that, I decided that I really love pure math and it's beautiful and cool, but I wanted to do something that was more um, relevant to the real world, I guess, and that I could talk to other people about, which is not true. Neither of those things are really true for doing pure math at that at that point. So um, I went and I ended up doing a postdoc at University of Michigan studying like what they call complex systems, which are basically like where you have lots of interacting things at kind of like a micro level that produce some kind of pattern at a or behavior at the macro scale. Um, and I was studying back then I was studying the diffusion of hybrid vehicles because um, Ford Motor Company sponsored my postdoc and they were interested in like what was going to happen with really? the market. Yeah. So I actually spent half what of my postdoc working at Ford and half of it at Michigan. Um, that was 2006 to 2008. So what was, was that like, like uh, the, what was that like for hybrid vehicles and for Ford? It's so interesting to, to, I didn't know that actually, you never told me that. Yeah. What's it like working for like a huge fortune 100 company it trying to be innovative? Yeah, it was really interesting because I, I had a kind of good situation because there was somebody who was pr fairly like decently well placed in the company. Like he was the manager of like a whole unit of Ford. There, there was called like their their analytics unit, um, and he was like the champion for my my postdoc. And so basically, like I got to go to Ford, and like anybody who worked anywhere related to him was just instructed to like answer any questions I had and I could like go around <laughs> the whole like go from person to person and just like ask them like what do you do what do you do and um it was it was really mind-opening because I hadn't been in a business situation like that before and like Ford is such a big company that like you know if they choose to like use a certain type of material or something it can affect the global price of that commodity you know like yeah. when, when they change right when they change like how much of a, of a certain metal they're going to use they have to think about like you know most people don't most companies don't have to think about affecting the total like global demand for something global supply chain yeah so yeah. um i mean that was pretty that was pretty interesting and then um 
I mean, do you think they all thought you were just there as like a, a consultant to see who's going to get fired? Do you think that's why they were like scared to talk to you? Because you're walking around and you're like, what do you do again? It's like just some weird office space type <laughs> consultant. I mean, at that point, I was so young that I don't think that that, that they had that, that fear of me. Although maybe, I mean, that's, that's, that is your stereotypical like consultant age right out of college, you know, just doesn't know anything. Right. And, uh, but uh I, I yeah i do feel like there there maybe were a few of them who were a few few employees who felt that they had better things to do with their time than answer my questions but for gen, almost most of the people were really um fun to talk to and and um that, yeah t told me all about whatever they were working on and um yeah and then i mean the other thing that happened while i was there was that this was also right at the beginning of the financial crisis and then like the, the automakers were in a huge right. crisis at that point and so about halfway through my postdoc pretty much like half of the people that worked in I, I worked in a building called research and advanced engineering and almost all of the research and half of the research and advanced engineering people um took like buyouts for their job and so all of a sudden there were 50 percent <laughs> of the workforce in that in the building wow. and uh and at that point like it's not like there was less work to do. It was just that all the work that had to be done was being done by half as many people. So they were pretty much not, they were now too busy to talk to me at that point. Um, and so yeah. that in many ways that kind of ended the Ford part of my, my postdoc. They, because the, the main person that I worked with, uh, took a buyout and the, everybody else was just strapped for a time. So I pretty much went back to Michigan and finished up my work there, but. Um, were they like, Hey kid, do you want a job? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you never offered me a job. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't think they were doing much hiring at that time. Um, they were more on the, on the, on the trimming at that point. What did you feel like? Um, do you feel like you learned, did, did it reinforce like some of the stereotypes that we all think about? companies that big because i've never worked for a company that big right uh yeah, is it yeah. is you know but i have it's like it's funny because um cat's favorite movie i mean i'd say in her top five is uh ford ford v ferrari if you've ever seen that i don't know if you've seen that <laughs> with, seen with matt damon because she loves the story right that that like under you know the big guy going against a small guy and it's like i'm just gonna yeah. i'm gonna solve this engineering problem by just throwing billions of dollars at it and, and crowd <laughs> you out and still like the small guy comes out ahead in some ways because it's like you know it's like you know, it's this boutique automaker versus Ford, right? And everyone's like, right. well, Ford can't make anything pretty or fast. And it's like, no, I'm pretty sure they can't, right? I'm sure if they just like focused <laughs> on it, they can, they can like, you know, it becomes a line item in a, in a really large budget. Um, and that's kind of what they did. And so it's just like that logistics of trying to do this kind of, um, you know, entrepreneurship in a small, in, in a huge business like that. Was yeah, that yeah. what was, was that what the hybrid or alternative power kind of stuff was within Ford? You know, um, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't think I got to see the, the, I, was, I wasn't involved in the engineering side of things, you know, um, yeah. I, but I was, I was trying to understand where the market was headed and whether or not, um, hybrids were going to become just like a little niche or whether it was going to become kind of like a, like an add on that would happen to like, would like every vehicle be able to come in a hybrid version down the road. And in particular, like, um, Bill Ford had made this commitment. He, he was the CEO at the time. He had made this commitment that we were, they were going to produce X number of hybrid vehicles within, I forget how many years. And, and when he made that commitment, I guess he didn't like ask anybody if that was reasonable. And, um, and so 
the, a lot of people were like, that's not reasonable. And they wanted to know, like, is, is that, was that possible that the market could bear that? Um, so I didn't see that much of the, like, you know, kind of that engineering, um, innovation side there occasionally you would, there, there were some things. So some of the people that I were, I were working though with were really interested in sustainability and they did have some kind of like really far out ideas. Like I remember they had this kind of thing where you would, it, w it was like a car that you would, uh, you would drive it on local streets. But then the idea was that there would be this kind of like monorail sort of thing that would exist on the freeways. And so when you're, when you drove onto the freeway, instead of the, you would just, your car would like attach to this, this rail system. And you would, you could then like, let go of the steering wheel and just enjoy your coffee, like for while you were on the freeway. Um, and it would like, you know, prevent accidents and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they had like these cool mock-up drawings of it. Uh, but I don't think that ever went anywhere, but, uh, so people were, people, yeah, people were, we're not, <laughs> I haven't seen that happening yet. <laughs> yeah. Given that I can't buy one right now. It's, no. it's the weird thing about driving. Right? It's like the most amazing thing to ever happen to the human species, but it's also the most miserable thing to ever happen. Right. It's like simultaneously both of those things. Totally. <laughs> it's yeah. like enables like, like, cult, like, you know, cultures to mix from across whatever. Um, so, so you went back and finished your, your postdoc, you know, amidst this kind yeah. of very bad luck time, right. Where this financial crisis was going on. And then where did you head off to? And then after that, uh, yeah, after that, I went to MIT and I was, a uh, um, a faculty member there for, um, it was three or four years. I kind of am losing track right now, but, um, I was, I was in the uh, management school there, Sloan, the management school with a group that's, it's called the system dynamics group. So they are, they're all mathematical modelers who have been doing a certain like style of mathematical modeling for they invented it there basically. And, um, yeah, that was also eye opening cause I'd never been in a business school before either. And I was teaching MBA students and, um, and they, they and I got to learn from all the people there. So both Michigan, they, all these places were really great learning experiences. Cause I was with in, Michigan was kind of actually the beginning of complex systems. They had a group there that had started complex systems as a sort of school of thought way before I got there. But, um, so I got to learn from like those guys and then at MIT from the system dynamics people. And it was all really fun. So P PJ, like when it's like the word theory in science, there's like, there's, there's like a, there's like a scientific, uh, you know, that word is used very differently by scientists. Yeah. I feel like there is this whole, you know, uh, uh, box of stuff here that you're saying the word complex and to the average person, I think we can all think of systems that are complicated, but when you say complex, I think you're referring something specifically to something else, like a different bounded set of problems, right? Like a different problem space. Can you describe what that means to you from a mathematical or, or physics level? Yeah, yeah, de definitely. And that's totally true. What you said that this, there's a differentiation between complicated and, and complex in this world. Um, so we think of complex systems as ones where um, behavior at some type of macro scale or aggregate scale is produced by interactions of smaller units at some kind of micro scale in such a way that, um, the, it's not, it's not obvious, I guess, that that macro pattern might emerge from those micro interactions. So we kind of think of it, we, we, we use this word emergence that the, the, the macro behavior emerges from these micro interactions. Um, so examples like that are really simple would be like a, like a school of fish or flocking birds, 
you know, those, those, those units, they don't have like a leader that says, Hey, everybody get in line. All the birds, like you, you go here and follow me. Um, they're just on their own somehow kind of like queuing off of one another and they collectively create this emergent behavior that then so in, in both of those cases actually like solves important problems, biological problems for them, whether it's like wind resistance or a predator avoidal or um, avoidance or whatever. Um, so those are great examples of complex systems. Ant colonies, you know, like can do these amazing things like build bridges and um, all these things, uh, even though, you know, the individual computational units that are doing those calculations are just ants who have almost no computational power in their brains. So. Um, and, and if you start thinking of it, like people are like yeah. this too, you know, cities and culture and everything comes from all these just uh, interactions of people. So it's the idea that like, if you can reduce these systems to really simple systems, like you're talking about these individual, you know, I think you guys call them agents, right? Or you would call them yeah. these individual participants in these systems. Like if you understood them really well, then you could, you could, you could predict how the larger system would evolve to some level of accuracy. Is that the idea? Well, um, I mean, in some ways, part of the idea is that actually you can't like, there's these sort of are like non-reductionist systems. So, um, I mean, at least in some cases you have to understand not just what kind of like an individual ant does, but you have to understand, um, the interactions between the individual ants basically, and sometimes the network of who they interact with. So there's some kind of middle scale that um, some kind of structure that determines who's interacting with whom, and then these rules for how they affect one another, and then that's what produces this collective behavior. And lots of times it's like, uh, when we say like, well, you could predict what it's gonna do. Um, one of the things that's, I guess, a hallmark of these kind of complex systems is that in, in a, like to predict what they do really means to kind of give like a probability distribution or a uh, a notion of like what's possible that they could do, but to know exactly what they're yeah. going to do in any one particular case is oftentimes very hard because there's a lot of like what we call path dependence. So this idea that, um, that kind of little micro fluctuations, like little things that happen early on can like push you down different paths and to, to different outcomes. Um, which is, which is in contrast to say like classical economics where like microeconomics, you think of as just there's supply and demand and in, in regular economics, like there's just kind of one equilibrium and no matter what happens along the way, you're like, everything gets sucked into that equilibrium where supply equals demand. And that's just determined by the cost of the goods and how much of it people want. And nothing can throw you off into like a different equilibrium. But in these complex systems, you know, you can end up with, um, an, a, a, a market example is like the VHS versus Betamax competition. You know, hmm. we ended up with, with VHS, but you know, you could have ended up with, with Betamax and it all kind of depended on a bunch of small things that happened early on in that battle. So, um, that's, yeah, that's another example. So, so what, what we can say as scientists oftentimes is we can say, well, it's either going to end up as VHS or Betamax, but you know, it's any, right. it's really going to be d impossible to predict which of those is going to happen. So we can kind of narrow down the class or of, of outcomes that are possible, but not necessarily a specific one. So it's pretty obvious from you talking about this, that I can think of probably 5,000 off the top of my head, different systems in different areas of our lives, right? I think all of us could, 
there's so many situations that involve so many different agents. So whether we're buying on Amazon or like consumer choices, I think is what you were getting at, uh, or you know, physiologic systems and so on and so forth. But I guess, but one of my questions is, so what systems do we understand really well versus what are still like in this category of it's just way too much uh, uh, interaction going on to where we're just really poor. So like, I, I guess, where do you, where do you plot these things on a scale? Uh, you mentioned like the 2008 crash. Is that is, is 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 are we finally understanding economics to the to the point where we can model it well? And I mean, I'm 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 aware of George Box's quote right about how all models are wrong, but some are useful. But like, how useful are are we? And how good are we right now? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I think that we are uh, still not great when it comes to humans. I think that the social problems are the hardest ones of, of all to crack. Like, um, we, you know, there's this, there's a saying, uh, it's not rocket science, which is supposed to mean like something's not hard, you know? And, um, uh, we yeah. always, we kind of joke in this field, uh, one of our, like the kind of leading scholars in our areas, this guy, Duncan Watts, who always uh, says that, you know, I mean, rocket science, like we're actually really good at rocket science <laughs> in rocket science. Like we can do what we want to do. Like if we have a problem, you know, we like land a helicopter on Mars, we can fly it around, you know, we can send like space shuttle or, you know, uh, what I don't know whether they're called crafts out to Pluto to take pictures of it, which is like, you know, millions of miles away. Like we can do those things, but like if you try to think of any big social problem, I mean, there's no social problem that's been like actually solved basically, you know, um, even though people are constantly saying like, Oh yeah, the healthcare system, that's not rocket science. Right. Like, <laughs> like they were, they're right. It's not rocket science. It's like way, way harder than rocket science. If it, was, if it was rocket science, we'd have that totally nailed by this point. Um, so that is to say that a lot of the, yeah, a long way of saying that the social problems we still are, have a challenge with. I mean, I think that we, we've, we made progress in understanding, um, certain, certain things. Like w one of the things that we've understood a lot more is in, is why things are hard to predict. And we've able to be almost be able to put bounds on the predictability of things. So like in marketing and stuff, like a lot of people want to understand, like, well, why do, why do certain things go viral? And, um, you, at this point, like, at least within within the domain of complex systems folks we i think we can say that that's that it's just like it's actually unpredictable um it's not just like that we don't have good enough data it's that there's so much randomness in this system that you you cannot predict accurately ahead of time you know what things are going to go viral um and i think i think that's that's progress right it's not it's not the answer maybe a lot of people wanted to hear, but it means that you can stop throwing away your money after a problem that can't be solved. Um, and you know, the, we have better luck in the physical or biological realm. Like the people who, there are people who do study, actually study schooling fish and flocking birds and stuff. And they've done like amazing things, uh, in those areas where they, they, you know, they've, they can build like robot fish that look like real fish and then they can substitute them in and change their behavior and watch how all the other fish react and do yeah. like really cool stuff with that. Um, and you know, there, there, there's people who are doing stuff on the, on the brain cause your brain's a complex system, right? It's a bunch of neurons all wired together. 
um, there's actually was some stuff, you know, a lot of the more recently in the news with like the COVID and everything, um, a bunch of the, the modelers who do forecasting for what's going to happen with disease spread are doing these types of, of models. And so I think that a lot of them proved pretty accurate in terms of where, where things were going to spread, how fast things were going to spread, um, what kind of interventions were going to be the most successful. Um, some of the, there's people who, who study the, the genetic, um, components of these diseases too, who like really early on, I saw a paper come out that was predicting, um, all these kind of other areas of the body that might be affected by the virus. And at yeah. the time they seemed really wild. Like I forget what some of them were, but, uh, you know, now we know, now we have seen actually, oh yeah, that can happen. Like, you know, it's not just like a cold yeah. that's really bad. It's also can, can get into other parts of your body. And I mean, the, the effects. So, um, I think those predictions bore, bore out over time. Um, so d yeah, disease, I think is one of the areas where we've actually made some, some big progress. There were people working on this back with, in the HIV, um, AIDS epidemic who like, uh, a guy named Carl Simon, who was like one of my mentors at Michigan did, um, really cool work that basically, um, you know, changed the way that we understood that, that AIDS was spreading in the early days and completely revamped our focus on preventing that. Um, so those are areas I think, yeah. So, so we're at a crazy time with that, with respect to that. Right. So I, I just love to get, um, a data dump on you from you just, so where do you feel like, you know, what, this is almost a, a year onwards, right? What models, what worked and what didn't like, just, just like looking back at this whole thing. Cause it would have been weird if we talked about this a year, uh, a year ago, cause we wouldn't right, have right. had enough information to know how things were going to go. And I feel like there's two sets of problems and I'd love your input on both. So obviously the physiological or the pathophysiological effect of COVID and its spread and its mutation rates and its ability to splinter off into different, um, to speciate, if you will, as yeah. I know it's not the exact right word, but into the different variants, which are, which have effects. However, the other question I have about this uh, is really about something that concerns me much, much more, which is the infodemic. So even if we had perfect knowledge of the virus and its its ability to spread and infect and cause these complications, our inability to persuade people correctly on the right behaviors or predict the magnitude of what's going to happen just seems like a horrible setup for the next thing that could be an episte uh, epistemic risk for us as a species. Yeah. So yeah. what what did work? Like what could, was this an opportunity or, or a dress rehearsal for scientists in your space to go, ah, this is actually in a weird way what we've been waiting for because now we can apply these models and test the results. Did that happen? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I mean, I think on the first question, yeah, on the physiological spreading question, that totally did happen. And I think it's still happening. Like there's, there are, really interesting models, actually the same guy who did the AIDS stuff, Carl Simon and his co-author, James Koopman at, at Michigan have done some stuff about predicting going forward, what's going to happen with the, uh, with the vaccinations, mutation rate, et cetera. And it all depends on how fast our immunity wanes and how much genetic drift there is. If there's sort of any little bit of, of, of both of those, then, uh, we can make a prediction for the future now that some variant of the coronavirus is going to be with us for a long time. 
um, and we're gonna have mm -hmm. like a, lots of little 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 outburst spikes that are, are gonna come back year after year, and the frequency of those just is gonna depend on how fast those um, the the immunity wanes and how how frequent that that drift occurs. But um, when it comes to the social side of things, like I mean, so this is something that we know could happen, and we see it happen. We've in, in some ways, like in political models or models of opinion formation, we see this happen a lot, this kind of um, polarization that everybody talks about. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, um, but as far as like s the solution to that, I, I don't feel like we are, are there yet. Um, there's like things that we know on the kind of individual level that seem to work and that's not necessarily really complex systems research it's more persuasion i guess um or psychology uh but um you know and that's i guess the best that i know i i do know that there's there's a book that just came out that i i would like to read that i haven't had a chance to yet um but that is my understanding is pro is probably the best um the Nick best Christakis's uh, book about it um i mean i think chris book is is, is going to be really interesting as well about just kind of the societal impacts but there's a um there's a book by a yeah. guy named chris chris bale called breaking the social media prism um he's a he's a sociologist at duke and um who's done a lot of great work in this area and uh, I understand from the blurb that it has some optimistic, um, optimistic outlook that there are, are things that can be done, um, to help with this. I mean, I think that, I don't know how much it's going to be useful, but all of the research that I have seen about these things, like about the misinformation and so forth really indicates yeah. that, um, you know, it's it's a it's a very small proportion of the population that is spreading this misinformation. Actually, like you think that it's everywhere, but um, I recently saw a talk that, that looked at um, it, w it wasn't a huge data set. It was sixteen thousand Twitter users, but what was really nice about this data set and why it was a little smaller was that these these people were um, they were actually verified real people. Um, they were verified using voter registration rolls. And normally on Twi if Twitter data, you don't know if you've got um, a person or a bot or a company. I mean, you know, a Twitter handle could be Ford or a Twitter handle could be Robbie Camaretti. And, right. you know, that's um, those are very different things. But these were real people, 16,000 people. And uh, uh, of those, I think 80% of the COVID um, fake news articles were spread by, by 16 people. You know, that's that's one in, uh, one in a thousand. Yeah, like 0.1%. Um, we're spreading 80% of the, of the fake news information now, and it was still reaching more people. That's it was insane. reaching something like 1% of the population. Um, but so like that, that seems like a problem that, that makes it more, more tractable in a way. Some of these problems, if it's, cause it's not, it's not as pervasive or it's not as, it's not like everybody, like you might think it is. So you just have to know which of these 16 people or which of this really small cadre of people would have a high probability of saying or doing, quote unquote, the suboptimal thing to set that off. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's an idea for sure. But 
the other the, the, the other problem and I mean this is like a um, this is also something that we know a lot about it, it goes back to this kind of VHS versus Betamax in a way you you end up with when you take VHS versus Betamax and you put it into a um, into kind of like a structured network in a way where people are not just paying attention to everybody but people are paying attention only to certain people that they're connected to um, then instead of ending up with just everybody using VHS or everybody using Betamax, you can end up with these um, groups of people where some people are using VHS and other people are using Betamax and, and they're, they're separated out, right? Which is what we have in lots of cases like with Macs versus PCs or like why we have different electricity standards in Europe versus here. Um, and that's not really like antagonism. It's not saying that you know, despite what Macs and PCs like do, uh, again, joke yeah. about each other, it's not like they really like the people who are using them don't typically have true animosity towards the other side. Um, right. Maybe. You don't know Mac, you don't know PC people, Mac people. And trust me, I, I know yeah. some that was <laughs> okay. gone to blows over the <laughs> kernel. Do you know OS 10 as a unit card? Did you know that? How do you not know? <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, some people take it a little seriously, but, but, um, you know, so we, we, we expect that to happen. We expect there to be different, we expect there to be differences and like there to be these kind of seas of social areas where people have different beliefs. Um, but I think what's problematic is, yeah, like when what becomes the dominant belief in one area is something that's really detrimental to society, um, like behaviors that, for example, allow the spread of a deadly virus. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that, that that came to be the dominant belief among a certain part of the network, like, you know, um, from the, from this like research on kind of like the viral, viral unpredictability of what goes viral. I mean, in some ways it's very unpredictable that that would be what, what went, what went viral in that, in that part of the network. And it's uh, in some ways, it's, you know, kind of some kind of randomly triggering events, um, led that to happen. And it's tempting to point fingers probably possibly accurately at certain individuals who might've, you know, promoted those, those beliefs. Yeah. And if they promoted some other beliefs, then that those people, then that whole population probably would have believed something else, which is to say like, really that it's not something intrinsic, like the, the whole, like, we don't want to wear masks. We don't want to get distance from people. That's not some intrinsic belief that that population had. I don't think I, I, is my, my opinion. I don't think that, I don't think if you had gone back and asked them before the pandemic and before certain political figures or whatever had said, this is what your group should is going to uh, converge on. Polarize too. Yeah. If you had said, yeah. you know, if this, if there's a pandemic, would you be willing to wear a mask? They're not going to, they, they don't want to say like, no man, masks suck. Like ahead of time. <laughs> it's just, that's what happened. They took a lesson. Um, and I think this happens all the time. Like there's this great paper called, uh, I think it's called why liberals, why liberals like lattes. And, uh, you know, <laughs> It, there's there's tons of things like this that correlate with political beliefs like for example that yeah uh liberal people are more likely to to prefer like a, a fancy coffee drink um which probably has nothing to do with being liberal you know it's just that this kind of these segregated populations and we influence group. each other yeah and then we end up um converging on something it's 
And what what it, it could have equally turned out that conservatives were the latte drinkers and liberals were I don't know what the conservatives drink, but um, or yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's flipped on several things, right? I mean, it's flipped over the last twenty five years on on I can think of a couple of prominent areas where that's been uh, that's changed, like. Uh, uh, climate change, right? I mean, if you look yeah. at con- political conservatives and Republicans, were very much into climate change. The initial, original, um, if you look at congressional hearings and stuff on the matter, it was like the Republicans were like, "Oh, this is a very responsible thing to do." And we, you know, if you ever read uh, Jonathan Knight's book um, about uh, the the moral underpinnings of like uh, conservative or liberal beliefs no, I in, in the United States, it's it's pretty interesting. So. So it's it's um, so there, it begs the question: How do you know which one's causing which uh, uh, the effect? Right. So it's you know that that uh, I think it was Seth MacFarlane from you know the creator of Family Guy, and they're like, dude, your stuff is really racist and and it's it's sexist and you know these jokes that are on Family Guy, which are which are pretty offensive but are but are funny because they they're hitting on some core stereotype or something that we've all experienced and we can all laugh at it or we can take it seriously. But he was saying. Hey, look, you know, we're not influencing or creating, you know, we're these belief systems. We're not at the genesis of this. All we are is a mirror. We're a mm-hmm. mirror to you. So when we see social networks and these memes go across, how much or the masking like you're talking about, how do we how do you know that it's not something that was actually a inbuilt um, you know, which started what, right? Was were, were the influencers just marketing something or ampl- were they amplifying something that existed or were they actually truly creating something novel? This is a super hard problem in our area, and it's like gone back for a while. Um, it's actually sometimes called the reflection problem, um, which is okay. to identify basically. So when when we see something like taking off, there's there's three classes of explanations, um, or, or, or maybe I should say this, a better way of saying it is when, when we see that there's clusters of people that are behaving the same way. There's three things that could explain that. One is that they, that it's spread from person to person, that there is influence, and it has to do with yeah social influence. The another possibility is that it has to do with preferences, and we choose to be connected to people who have similar preferences to us. So, um, you know, the conservative people will prefer to not wear masks, and they prefer to be friends with other conservatives, and so that's why we saw conservatives not wearing masks. Um, and then the the, um, what's the third possibility? Let me think. I'm blanking now for a second. Oh, the third possibility is that it's something, um, something exogenous that's uh, correlated with our friendships. It's hard, um, so maybe it's like we're we're friends with people. We're um, uh, so that could, that could be that we because we're conserv- we're friends with other conservatives because we're conservative we all listen to the same um, news program and the news program said don't wear masks and so we decided all to not wear masks so there's something correlated with both our friendship and that causes our behavior um, and disentangling like from data what the, which of those three things produce the, the the pattern we're seeing is is really I mean so we've been able to prove that under certain assumptions, it's impossible to disentangle these three, these two things. Um, in other words, if you basically, if you just see what people do over time and who they're friends with, there's no way to know which of these three things did it. So to, to actually understand which of these three things did it, you've got two options, which are, which is one to, to get data, not just on who 
what people did and who they were friends with, but actually to like somehow probe individually why they did what they did. It's one option. Another option is to um, to make more assumptions. So you can you can make some assumptions about exactly like kind of the, how exactly people influence one another. So for example, you might assume that um, I adopt a behavior once some threshold number of my friends adopt that behavior. That's an assumption that says, and if I assume that everybody acts that way, then I can estimate how much these different things played a role. Um, the best thing you can do is, if you could run an experiment, if you can actually control who's friends with whose friends, or control what information they see receive, but in most of these real-life circumstances, you can't do that. So that leaves us like in a tough spot. I mean, Lots of times we just, lots of times we don't know. Right. So where are we with um, being able to predict? Actually, no, let me ask something else that's, that's going to take us in a, maybe a direction. So in the 60s, there was this paper, right? I think it was his name, Wigner, who wrote that, that paper about, you know, what's the, about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Oh, yeah. So okay. it's like, wh why does math work so, okay, so you can either take two stances on this, right? You can either say the Max Tegmark way and say, no, no, the universe is just intrinsically mathematical, so it works really well. Or you can take the side which I kind of more gravitate toward, which is the Stephen Wolfram way, which is, no, there's irreducibility and there's complexity and everything's in a, you know, an agent and this huge, huge Conway's game of life, and uh, it's not clear. It's like, actually, when we think things are really mathematically sound, they're not, because we can't even solve things. Like, we don't have exact solutions to lots of problems. Like, you, you know, you talk about rocket science, but like the three-body problem, you still have to approximate that, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it's not something you have exact solutions to, and that's like a simple gravitational problem. So where do you stand on this? <laughs> and I, I feel like your area of complexity is, is kind of on the battleground, right? Where it's like, is math working for this is it the right tool so where do you i'll just let you take it from this definitely i haven't no one's i I've, I've been asked that question but not for many years um like i used i used to uh when i was an undergraduate i, I took a class from um this guy named saunders mclean who was like in his 90s at the time but he's like famous for he invented like a, a whole yeah he invented this whole like branch of mathematics called category theory which was like a super cool way of thinking about it's kind of like a meta mathematics in a way and like every third he was he was sort of forgetful at the time like about every third class he would begin with this question like so why does math work you know <laughs> and like yeah the students we were all just like oh why don't you tell us you know I mean? um but uh, it seems like a trick question yeah i don't know it was something that clearly like he just bothered him though and Oh God, I wish I had a good answer. What do, where do I stand? I mean, I, I haven't even thought about this forever. I don't know. I, I think I always joke to my students, like, uh, when I'm teaching us, I, I always say like, you know, I'm not a religious person, but if I was, it would be because of the central limit theorem, you know, not because of like, <laughs> <laughs> like that's something really amazing like, that, 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 that nature like somehow works in this way that everything explain you know. the central limit theorem <laughs> okay i mean the central limit theorem basically says if you take random variables and add them up it converges to a normally distributed normal distribution um there's like a couple assumptions that have to be independent and kind of uh, identically distributed but the cool thing the amazing thing about why why does the central limit theorem make me think there might be a high power power <laughs> is because uh you can take 
Yeah. It doesn't matter how the initial stuff, you're, whatever initial stuff you're talking about, if you add it up, you still get no normal distribution. So like, let's say, uh, so an example might be like, let's say I, I, I take like 100 people and I count all the hairs on their heads and add them all up. And I do that thousands and thousands of times. The distribution of like numbers of hairs on heads in these sums will be normally distributed. But if I did the same thing and asked people how many siblings they had, it would also turn out to be normally distributed, even though these are like totally different things to start with. And it really just like doesn't matter what you start with. Everything converges to this normal distribution when you add it up, as long as they're independent, which I'm assuming that like the number of hairs on my head doesn't impact the number of hairs on someone else's head. So those are independent. And so, um, it could you know, have been time. It could have, you know, a million generations ago. Maybe. Who knows, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, evolutionarily. It could be somehow linked. But there, you know, it's, um, and that's why you see approximately normal stuff all the time. Like if you look at distributions of male heights or female heights, it's like roughly normally distributed because of this. And, um, you know, and that, and the normal distribution in particular, to me, like stands out as amazing because it's like this totally as you know, like the equation for it is like really hideous equation and it involves pi, which is this terrible number, but that just happens to be the ratio of the circumference to diameter of a circle. And it why involves, do you, <laughs> it involves why do you E, which is like number? another terrible number, which, you know, well, I mean, the thing that's bad about pi is like, um, that besides like, so Many, many people might know that pi is irrational, meaning like you can't write it as a fraction. Um, and so it's decimal expansion goes on forever and never like falls into a nice repeating pattern. But it's an even like kind of worse type of number, which is called a transcendental number, which means it's not the solution to any polynomial equation. You can't write down an equation like x squared plus blah, 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 where pi is the solution, um, which is not true of like many other numbers like the square root of two is irrational but it's the solution to the equation x squared equals two <laughs> so um right but but pi is not and um pi, you know mo in our normal life like most of us no there's only two transcendental numbers you ever encounter those are pi and e um but it turns out actually that there are many, many more transcendental numbers than, than, than rational numbers, or, you know, it, most of most numbers on the number line are actually transcendental numbers, but you just never run that into seems, them. That seems like something that you can, you can prove like easily, but that like, is just <laughs> astoundingly weird. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember the first time, cause it was in college when I, when I read like the whole, um, this whole treatise on like, you know, Girdle's theorem, right? Yeah. I just, I just, I did, I refuse to believe it. I remember because <laughs> me and my friend Paul were, were, I was like, I was like, this just, it did just, it didn't seem like, it, it seemed like an interesting idea, but there's no way you could prove it. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, so it just doesn't seem, it, it, it also seems like for a mathematician, it's like a, it's like a thorn in your side. It's <laughs> right. like something that it's like what you wish you could uninvent or unlearn. He's <laughs> yes. like, it's like, Oh, we wish we did. This wasn't a thing because <laughs> right. one thing I don't understand about that whole treatise is, um, what are the implications of it? Does it have any actual implications? Does it stop you from doing anything in math? No, not really. I mean, no, no, to, no to the last question. Does it stop us from doing anything? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think of, ever seen anybody think like 
oh, well, we're not going to be able to solve that incompleteness theorem, you know? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's like problems yeah. out there that we're still trying to, to solve that have been unsolved for a long time, like the Riemann hypothesis or something. But I don't think people are saying, well, the reason we can't solve that is just because of incompleteness theorem. We're just think, we just think we haven't figured it out yet. Um, I, I'm sure that for somebody like who's into the real like logic area of mathematics that produces things like the incompleteness theorem, it probably has like real implications for their work. But in the rest of math, I think we just kind of kept going <laughs> and, and didn't worry about it too much. So, PJ, what are your thoughts? I mean, there's so many ways you can approach social networks. I know you've, you've done work in like tipping points and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, but it, so it seems too simplistic to ask you, hey, are you for social networks or not? It seems more interesting to ask you, how useful are they as a source of not just entertainment, but of research data that's reliable enough to where you can start getting better at building models that are more predictive or more useful. Yeah. I mean, isn't it, it don't they represent at some level um, this metaverse of human psychology and human behavior? And why doesn't it, you know, why does, and how different are they? Are the, the way Twitter works and ideas spread through something like Twitter very different than how they spread through Facebook? Or there's some, there's just seem to be some kind of, uh, meta language or, or, or model that all these networks use and even including uh, analog networks like you know just if you went to back 200 years just how ideas spread through cultures and yeah and people traveling yeah um yeah so to answer your first question i think that it's huge for social science research the existence of these of digital what we call digital trace data which includes social media data but all kinds of other data cell phone data um is like, you know, revolutionizing the way that we do social science and the amount of things that we can, can understand. Um, Duncan Watts, who I mentioned earlier, like compared, compares it to like what the telescope was for astronomy, you know, like we can now just see things that we could never see before. Um, and so Galileo invented the telescope and all of a sudden could figure out like, Hey, wait a second, you know, the earth revolves around the sun and this is how planetary motion works and everything. And, um, you know, having all this digital data is making it so that we can see things that we really just were impossible to see before at scales that we could never see them. Um, and so it, it is leading to like, to lots of discoveries. Um, and I think that it's also, there's been a lot of calls in our area for what we kind of call more like problem focused research. So to really like try to address actual problems that need solving. And, um, I think that's a really, um, beneficial way of, of thinking about the future of our, of our research. That's, that's kind of taking hold. Um, and so we're, yeah, it's been, it's been great for us, um, on all kinds of different research fronts. How much our online behavior mirrors our offline behavior depends on what kind of questions you're asking. And there, there's certainly differences from between networks, between Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it's going to be. But um, I think there's a, there's, there are fewer differences than we might expect between th there is this um, uh, congruence between our behavior in these networks and what we saw in analog networks before. Um, so in some ways, like, like if you look on Facebook, for example, 
and look at the kind of like structure of our of our of our friend networks on Facebook. Well, yeah, they're they're very different than what in what in in some respects they're very different than what our network of of so quote unquote real friends are. Um, you know, like I'm sure many, you and me and many people are friends with a bunch of people on Facebook that are kind of only vaguely remember who they are, but um, right, but when you drill down into say like the set of people that you really interact with on Facebook or the or or you look at subsets of that network of like people you can look on Facebook and say okay do these people ever appear in a photo together on Facebook or things like that those networks look just not not only like what our offline networks will look like but um there's been research on like what our offline networks might have looked like like millennia ago like so some people have done work on like hunter-gatherer yeah. tribes in africa and who we assume kind of behave similar to we to hunter-gatherer tribes like thousands of years ago and um and their social networks look not that different from our social networks in a way so i i do think there are there are some things that are the same um and that are probably somehow dictated by that I mean, part of it goes back to the fact that, like, in in evolutionary time, like, these networks haven't existed very long, right? So our brains are still haven't, like, changed the way that we think, the way that right. we've evolved to behave and, and uh, are the same. We just have these different tools. What does change, though, big, massively, I think, is the collective behavior, because... Um, you you just all of a sudden have wired people up in this way that they weren't wired before so you didn't change the people like our brains are still the same and the way that we might interact with the people right around us are the same but it's but if you change how those people are connected then the macro behavior cha totally changes just like like disease is a great example you know our our immune systems haven't changed viruses haven't changed that from you know thousands of years ago but like when the black plague spread through europe it took it took years for it to make its way across the continent you know when covid came out it took you know months for it to make around the globe that's not because the virus is different it's not because people's immune systems different it's because the yeah. network of who we connect is different and that that changes tons of things um you know that's probably that's why things like political revolutions like happen in the arab spring can happen not be probably not because of anything that happened kind of in terms of people's discontent with their leaders not from anything that happened with the way the leaders were behaving but just because of the way that people could communicate like all of a sudden you got people hooked up in a way that they can talk to each other and coordinate and spread information and then it spreads <laughs> so yeah yeah it's interesting i mean it's and it's it's because it could be such a conveyor, a conveyor belt of good and bad stuff, right? So it's difficult to say, oh my God, is it net good or not? It's like I don't know, or is that commu is communication in general net good or not? I don't know if you have a, if you have a strong opinion about it. Um, but what's what's fascinating is this in, incessant. I don't know if it's a generational thing. I feel like when we were growing up, I mean, you and I didn't go around in, in high school thinking about who the influencers were. Or whether we wanted to be an influencer, and I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I mean, popularity exists in any kind of social setting of human human beings. But at the same time, I feel like it's different, sure. right? I mean, if you look at a me, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't okay. think so. I think I may have been a connector. I mean, our high school was really weird, right? I think it was very atypical than most schools. I we didn't have the midwestern. We had the groups of people, 
but everybody was pretty cool. It was actually very weird. Uh, everybody <laughs> was just kind of okay with everybody else, right? It was this, it was kind of a, a very interesting multicultural mix. Yeah. Um, it didn't have like the jock nerd hierarchy scale thing. That's the stereotype, and you know, I think, yeah, we were very different. So I don't know, I don't know what went into making that different. But my point being, um, you know, like the the fourteen year old TikToker right now who who lives or dies by the uh, the the count on the view count. Like, what do you think about that? This kind of focus on these specific metrics. I'm not so sure that we're even measuring the right metrics, but they're clearly causing huge swings in mood and 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 helping people plot their behaviors at a really weird impressionable age like how much should be should we be worried about that how much are you worried about that for your kids yeah well um so first of all this goes a little bit out of my area of like scientific expertise so i want to say i'm speaking as a normal person now which is to say that uh you know i think it's pretty bad it seems it seems pretty bad to me um you know, and I see, like, I teach as a professor, I teach college age kids, and I see this with my students. And it, you know, I don't know if it's just that I'm getting old, but it just seems, it seems like it's getting worse. I feel, I have this sense of that my students have more anxiety, and I get more and more cases where a student, you know, is suffering from depression and some kind of mental issue is interfering with their ability to be a productive student. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, I, I feel like this, these networks have a role in that. Um, and, and partially, I think, I think from the scientific side, again, this gets back to this kind of unpredictability or arbitrariness, like, um, that, you know, a person's kind of popularity or the success in some way or whatever metric you want to measure by um that that has a this big degree of randomness to it it's not like people it's not like you it's not like the people it's not like uh, how to say this it, it's like you know if you fail on twitter or whatever that doesn't mean you posted something that was a failure or um in a way it just probably means mm -hmm. it was bad it was bad luck um, and so like people's kind of, how sure are you about that? Cause a lot of money goes into this, right? I mean, there's an insane amount of attention to people who are consuming stuff, but also people trying to sell and yeah. to solve this very question. Like what makes something viral? What makes something, um, you, you know, who's so popular? I can think of one example, you know, stat news, which is like the medical news site. Yeah. 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 It's an online magazine. And they talked about, uh, 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 Dr. Jaw, you know, and how he became like the voice, the online voice of, of COVID, like a trusted voice, uh -huh. um, you know, and then I can think of like Brett Weinstein and his wife, right, who are who've been talking about the lab leak hypothesis for a while now, and yeah. how that that is swung through social media in terms of the valence, like, oh, this is a horrible idea, you're an idiot for thinking about it. Now it's like coming back into play. Um, I mean, how sure are you that it's just bad luck? Or was it just bad marketing? I mean, was it was it was it the the parameters they were using? The did they did they select the wrong filters? Did they, you know, isn't this the thing everyone's trying to solve using social media as a platform? So how do I get my message to you? And and why isn't my success related to that? Like, is it is it bad luck? Or is it just I did a bad job? Yeah, I mean, so what I, what I can say, like I'm I would am am really sure about is there is that there are two two components, which is that um it's not 
like if, if we want to say like maybe we talk, call like there's two dimensions like quality and success let's say all right so quality is like really how good was your thing whether it's a message or uh you know a tweet you post or some uh, piece of information you're trying to spread an advertisement whatever it is um so you know quality we might think of as like well if if there was no social influence if people just if we did focus groups or something you know would people really would this message resonate with them would they believe it or whatever let's call that quality um and then success is just how much it actually takes off and so quality definitely correlates with success like we know that you're more likely to mm -hmm. succeed if you have something better and you're less likely to see, succeed if you have something that's bad um and what the data tends to show is that like the bad stuff almost never succeeds it's very rare to have something that people individually really dislike but that somehow takes off um that almost never happens but what we do see often is that stuff that's that's really really good that people would could like individually doesn't doesn't make it um and that sometimes the stuff that really does make it is more could be more middle of the road um so mm -hmm. there's a bunch of there's just there's a huge component that's random is what i would say you know there's there's it's very the the level of interesting how much you can predict it based on quality is really really low and so um yeah so there's a there's the, the 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 in the skill versus in the skill plus luck equation you know there's a b much bigger weight on luck than there is on skill um but but you do have to kind of have some minimum level of skill or else you're definitely not going to go anywhere i guess so that's really really fascinating to me i feel like retrospective bias is just an innate human feature of our brains we just make up these stories we have these results Absolutely. i ended up in san diego you ended up in you know in san diego right and we we're from 2000 miles away um and we can make up these stories and how we got here. And I can say, well, some part of that is my ability, uh, intentionality, thoughtfulness of my next moves, my strategy, whatever. I'm not really sure if that's true. I need to believe that that's true <laughs> because I need to have some kind of sense of myself. But are we just fooling ourselves? How much of this is just, hey, right place, right time, right? Yeah, totally. I think that that's, that's absolutely right. Um... Yeah, I mean, I keep bringing him up, but this guy, Duncan Watts, has another book called Everything's Obvious Once You Know the Answer. You know, um, it's like, after, yeah, we, all, we can all say that, of course, this was going to happen, whatever it is. Um, but if you actually go back beforehand, you know, we can't, we, nobody could predict, uh, predict what was going to happen. So um, I, th I think, yeah, I think it's a huge part of it is just, yeah, luck, random, of the draw. You, don't have so. <laughs> have you started using Clubhouse or seen it? No. Or tried no. it? I feel, I feel like it's part of your job description is to like test out new social networks. <laughs> but this one is, right? It's like you could justify that, that use yeah, of time yeah, pretty yeah. well. Uh, but I, it, what's fascinating about this is it's just exactly just a conference call. So it's just audio only. And it's mm -hmm. just a, an, an app that sits on your, your phone or whatever. What's funny is um, people were asking, I've noticed a bunch of doctors on it and a lot of professionals. A lot of cool people in, in this space, right? So like the, the hardcore sciences and like physics and, and everything from that entertainment. And there's like a follower accounts and stuff like that. One thing I've noticed, and I said to myself very intentionally when I started using it, I was like, what I'm not going to get stressed about here is the follower count. What I do want to emphasize for myself, like how I'm going to use this app and not get sucked into this, the typical trap, is, um, is I'm going to make it a point to 
to try to connect as, uh, as, as cross disciplines as I can. So I'm going to have people who are following me who are, who are Hollywood producers. And then I've got people who are, we're talking about AI and consciousness at two in the morning. Um, and, and they're following, you know, so the friend network, the diversity of interests yeah. is really high because I get more value out of that, mm -hmm. but that's not something we do a good job of measuring. And I feel like that's a metric. And I was thinking about that. I was like, why don't we measure that in things like Facebook and Twitter? It's like, who, what kind of people are making up, um, your follow count? Like the histogram is never shown, right? People yeah, are not yeah. showing that even though we probably have that data about them. Wouldn't yeah. that be more interesting to know, like who is following you? Totally. Um, yeah, that, that you're, you're exactly right. And, um, there's actually some pretty good research about this that goes back, but pre social media, um, when you're trying to look at, um, success of, of people, like at whatever their job is, let's say, um, one, uh, big predictor of their success is there is some things about their social network and uh it's we, we call this social capital right this is like the value that you get from your social connections and it turns out that like the um so this guy named ron bird he went around and measured people's social networks and bunches of firms by basically just asking them who are your closest contacts who are your friends or who do you go to for advice or whatever um and then he would look at how people did like on their evaluations by their superiors or how good, how big of a bonus they got for a bunch of financial analysts or all kinds of stuff like this. And he found that, you know, how big your network was had no, had almost no predictive value, but, um, it, it's, a it's, it's a structural, uh, measure that gets at the diversity that you're talking about. So he's, he's only looking at the who you're connected. He's only looking at the, the ties. Like he doesn't know who the people are themselves. So we can't measure whether or not they're different from each other. Yeah. But something that gets at that is what proportion of your connections are connected to each other. Okay. So if all your connections are connected to each other, then you're probably like in a little niche, you know, you're probably all right. All ER docs, right. Or all network scientists or whatever. Um, and that's how you get that way. But if, if you're, but for you, like you're talking about, okay, I was connected to the AI person and the Hollywood person and whatever, like those people probably weren't talking to each other, right? Because they're totally different types of people. And so if you have a network that has where the percentage of your friends who are friends with each other is really low, that was, you're much more likely to, to be su successful in terms of getting a bigger bonus or getting a better evaluation or pretty much whatever the- Why right, do you think that is? Uh, I mean, I think it's the diversity. We think that, um, the, you, by having access to these diverse individuals, that gives you the chance to transfer knowledge from different areas to your own area, gives you access to different, um, perspectives. It gives you access to more information. Um, so I think those are kind of like our three, three, three big, big three reasons for why that, that works. Um, and it's a pretty robust finding. Like it's been found in, in a bunch of areas and we've got good models for why that, wh why it works. And, um, I mean, I think we feel pretty good about th that fact that by building a diverse network or by building diverse teams, you're more likely to, to be successful. Um, yeah. So good strategy, Robbie. When you say diverse, when you say diverse teams, you mean like heterodox thinking. Is, is that the underlying what you're trying to get at? I mean, like people just basically their expertise and their opinions on things. Yeah. I mean, expertise and opinions on things and just also like kind of approaches to problems. Um, 
you know, like if you got a bunch of people together just to, to, uh, like, let's say you're the president and you're, you're getting your presidential COVID team together, you know, you could just only choose, um, epidemiologists who went to, um, Johns Hopkins or Harvard or like three top medical schools, or you could like get some of them. And then some people who study networks and maybe an economist in there and a couple, um, you know, uh, people who maybe a regular doctor, you know, an ER doc, let's say people who have different perspectives and different ways of looking at those, the same problem. Um, because the idea is just that when one person gets stuck, you know, you want to have someone else who can think differently, um, and can, can, can unstuck them, <laughs> unstick them. So, uh, and what's, what's the threshold for disruption there, PJ? you think when you're com putting together these teams because i i, I found that in my previous experience with startups for example a large percentage of what the management team is doing is evaluating people and hiring yeah and this seems to be like a super skill that i've ever if there was a common pattern among startups that succeed it's like that ability to get those right people yeah is critical i mean you could argue that um elon musk's real talent is that right you could say hey he's able to position in place the right people in the right positions to, to where they're just executing on a vision that he's sees very clearly. Yeah. Um, or maybe that vision actually emerges and, and probably just grows as, as the products grow and the challenges get, uh, they, they go through meeting these challenges, but where, where do you, where does it get too disruptive? <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. You mean like by having too much diversity, you basically like decrease productivity yeah. because people don't speak the same language and everything. Yeah. 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 That's, I think that's a harder question to answer. Um, you know, one of the things, I don't know, what, what do we know about that? Well, the first thing we know is that like when you have a really small team, um, yeah, at the very beginning, you know, it's, it's probably best to start with the people who are the best and not, not focus on the diversity. Um, and I don't mean, I think, you know, back, uh, identity diversity here necessarily. Right. Um, but then as, as, as you grow, uh, then you want to try to inject novelty, you know, bring in different ways of thinking. Um, and, but yeah, I guess I don't have a good answer to that. You, you, there's, it comes at a cost for sure. Right. It comes at a cost of, of efficiency. And, um, I think that, I think that we, there are ways of, of, um, of trying to have it both ways a little bit, but I'm not sure in this, it works in the startup world. Um, you know, f so for example, with, uh, actually, let me not get into that example. It's too, I don't think that's not going to fit quite right with what we're going to say, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I don't think anybody does. How much does this does your study of of complex networks and specifically since you've delved into things like social networks, how does it just mess with your day? Like when you go, you know, to like a fa family gathering or like you see your friends and, and stuff like that, are you just always are, are those gears always churning for you when you're <laughs> analyzing the way people are connecting or when you're watching TV shows or news and things? Can are are you able to just turn that off and enjoy the moment? Well, I think I, I think. I, 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 yes and no. Um, so no, I can't turn it off. I mean, it, it just changes the way you think about everything. 
and like it's just you know it's kind of like putting on a, a a certain you know colored glasses or whatever and it just changes the way that you see the world um but you it's not like that makes it less enjoyable in a way it's just that's just how you think about things and so i don't even notice it really i just get you just get used that's just how it is you know when i i i think about feedbacks and i think about networks when i when i'm thinking about a problem or what's happening when I, when i see like what's happening with my my kids at school or uh or the parents who are hanging out outside the school i think of it in <laughs> i i kind of it's not like I'm writing down an equation in the corner to solve, but, uh, you know, I, I guess they do kind of see it in those that the language you have affects the way you think. And, um, so it does change my perspective on things, but it's not a big, it doesn't feel like I'm a, it's not intrusive. It's, it, it makes you appreciate the handicap the in a very unique way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're handy able. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You're network enabled. So, so what? So, just take me into the current the the current classroom of of Dr. Lamberson. So, you know, if I was one of your students, so yeah. what is the what is the hot topic that you're you're currently working on from a research standpoint? But also, what's what seems to be the popular things that you're teaching now? Yeah. So, I teach a bunch of different classes, and they're kind of like all have different, um, you know, different things that people take away from them, but. I mean, with with the advanced students, we're we're working on this idea that we discussed earlier about how um, this the digital data gives us new insights into to social science. So I'm teaching PhD students about how they actually can go scrape the web for data um, and make use of all these new online experimental platforms and stuff to to actually do their research because these are people who are wanting to become, you know, the PhD students. So they want to become professors or, or researchers in some way. And so I'm kind of hoping to give them some of the skills and, and get them excited about like, Oh my gosh, wow, we can, there's all these questions we can tackle now. Um, so that's fun. And the undergraduate students, you know, I think that, uh, my favorite thing to teach them and something that I think that they that they do actually get excited about is has a lot to do with disease spread. But when um, when we when we learn when they when they learn how they can take mathematics and like understand um, why something spreads or doesn't mathematically. Um, and especially for students who like come into this, my, my students are communication majors for the most part. So they're not necessarily coming in thinking like they're, mm -hmm. they've got many of them come in thinking they don't have real strong quantitative skills, but to, for them to be able to be, say like, Oh my God, I can understand this. Um, I think they find that really gratifying and, and get excited about it. So, but it's probably just cause I'm excited about it. And then they, it rubs off. That's really cool, PJ. It's something. Like, I mean, math is a, is a language, and it's really intimidating to a lot of people, me included. It's one of those things where I know I could do it if I just spent the right amount of time and had expert instruction yeah. and learning how to do it. And I never did that, so it's like I think I fall into this phenotype of people who are like, "Well, I just I'm just bad at it." I'm like, "Well, no, I didn't practice enough, right?" Right. Not to say not to say I could understand it to the level of of, of things you do, but. How can we, uh, you know, how can people listening help you? How, how, how do they get involved with working with you specifically or just 
what are the interesting topics or ways to be involved in, in projects? And I, I mean that in, in the way of not just even being like leading research, but even just participating in a study at home type of way, if you will, right? I mean, yeah. are there projects going on that they could participate in? Yeah, that's, um, that's actually one of the other cool things that I think is happening is that people are able to get involved. Um, and so there's, um, uh, let, me, let me make sure I get the website right here. Um, yeah, so there's a, there's a website called volunteerscience.com. Um, and, oh, cool. and this is just one of the, one of the places, um, that's doing this. Let me see. Um, this is who the people are. Yeah. Um, this is started by, um, a guy named David Lazar, who is a political scientist. Originally he's at Northeastern university in Boston and, um, he he's he was one of the authors on the study I mentioned earlier about um, the the sixteen thousand Twitter users and only sixteen of them producing eighty percent of the fake news um, links. So um, they they started this and it, it you know it lets people um, it's a great way for people to get involved actually in, in research in various ways, um, and so that that's that's where I would go to start with. I mean, there are other things you can do. You can be a experimental subject on the Amazon Mechanical Turk or something, but that's um, I think less gratifying and less like really involved than something like this is, um, where you can actually kind of get uh, sort of what we call citizen science in a way. Involved. Um, and there's other cool projects like that going on. So like, uh, if you're into bird watching. You can, uh, there's like an app called Merlin you can download. I don't know if you, if you, if you, if you even think birds are cool nice. at all, it's awesome. Yeah. They can fly. <laughs> yeah. It automatically puts them in an awesome, cool category. I mean, like, like who does, who, when people are like, oh, bird brained, I'm like, I feel that that's weird that that's, that's an insult. <laughs> you realize they, they navigate for thousands of miles with, with, with with magnetite ore in 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 uh, light receptor molecules around their eyelids, I'm like, you know, it's pretty amazing stuff, right? Yeah. So Merlin. So is Merlin. it a, is it a uh, categorization or classification tool? Yeah, it's just a, it's like an app that like it just helps you identify birds, but 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 um, it's it's like but behind the scenes, Cornell uh, is collecting all the data, and it's a lot. It's like it's like them being able to field like 100 million graduate oh, students. Oh, Cornell, you know? yeah, they have the. They have the largest ornithology database, I think. They've yeah, had that for a long time. I mean, this, like is, this is basically created like by regular people because, you know, you can, they used to have to like send researchers out in the field to do bird surveys, but now they basically have like a million bird watchers everywhere doing this for them. And they've been able to observe all kinds of stuff that they and detect patterns. There's another one called Galaxy Zoo. Um, that was really cool. Like they have, you know, they've got like thousands of pictures of galaxies out there. And in the old yeah, days, they had to have like a graduate student, like go through and like, cat, you know, code each one. Right. And then that, now they have like regular people doing it. And, and because they've able to scale up the data so much, they found all these new discoveries. So, you know, you can go get on galaxies and categorize some galaxies and you actually can help people discover stuff. So. Well, I guess I could, I, I'll leave you with a, with a question of um, a hard question, but you may have already been primed for this uh, because you've been thinking about it. What is the dream data set? What is the dream, you know, complexity problem that you've always wanted to not just work on, but solve? Like, what is the one you want the answer to? 
Answer meaning oh, high man. predictability. Uh. <laughs> uh. Nobody has asked me this question. You know, you, you think it's a question you think about all the time, but like most of the time you're just thinking about what the next step is, you know, in front of your, in front of your face, I feel like. Yeah. Um, What's the area that no one's touched or that, or that, or that someone's just been, people have been trying to work on like Remon, like people have been trying to work on for a long, long, long time, just yeah. never made any headway, but now possibly we have, you have the data, computational power, the tools to do it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think I like, there are two big problems that I work on for the most of the part, most of my time. And those are how the things spread, how do things spread? Meaning usually ideas or behaviors. And then how do people work together as teams? And both of those problems, we had data now exists that could give us much, much better answers to those questions. And one of the difficulties is that just a lot of that data is locked inside of firms. You know, it's, it's, it's in Facebook, um, or it's in Twitter and we you know, I guess like if there was a problem that I could solve. I think I'd rather solve the infrastructure problem and figure out how we can create an interface between um, the academic research and those private interests in a way that um, preserves people's privacy, but allows us to, you know, to, to, to mine that, that data effectively. Um, because then there's just so many questions that we could tackle. But in some ways, that's a question that we have to answer first is how, how can we make it work? Um, and, you know, and there's big risks for both parties, um, like with the Cambridge Analytica and all that stuff, you know, it can, it can blow up right. in your face if you don't do it right. And so I think everybody's being, but at the same time, like you don't want to be too cautious. You don't want to step away from every question because there are important questions that actually like, you know, can literally save lives and so forth um that we might not be answering because we're too scared to about the about the about the data privacy so we have to it's it, we have to figure out a way to make it work nice well pj how can people get a hold uh this has been fun i mean i i can i can keep going for hours but um how can people get a hold of you how where can they find you yeah, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find on the web. Uh, you know, if you Google me, you go to, you'll find my website. It's social-dynamics.org and my email's up there. It's just my last name at UCLA.edu. Um, I'm pretty, pretty easy to find. Not necessarily, I'm on Twitter, PJ Lamberson. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm as, I'm not always super responsive. I, I tend to get behind, especially these days because, uh, during the pandemic, I've got my, my kids at home. Uh, all the time, so I'm spending a lot of time on that, but but I'm out there. Very cool, man. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, Absolutely, it's been out. fun, Rob.